Welcome to the River Christian Fellowship. It's good to see you all out. Um, fearless, right? Fearless in the face of, uh, I don't know what, I was going to say certain death, but no, it's not that. Um, I'm Pastor Scott Spencer. I'm the assistant pastor here. I'm filling in for Mike, who is gone today. And um, I'd like to bring you a message from James. James uh, chapter 1. The topic of James chapter 1, how to live with faith and trials. And I think it fits perfectly where we're at right today. You know, Christianity is more than a philosophy. It's more than a theology. It's more than a religious teaching. It's a lifestyle. It's a way that we live. It's a way that we live based on a vital relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. Um, Sometimes people feel like they become a Christian and uh, they walk the aisle, they say a prayer, and they're done. And that's not how it is. That's the beginning point. The beginning point is when you make a commitment to Jesus. It's when you make a public profession of your faith. And and that's the first step. God has invited us to love him with all, all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. He wants for us to not only know about him, but to know him personally. Relationship with Jesus Christ is is a personal relationship. You know, when you you marry somebody, um, you know them a little bit. Maybe you've known them for a couple of years, but it's not the same as when you get married and you're spending all of your time with them. That's when you really get to know somebody. That's when you develop the relationship. Um, You could say, well, um, I'm married to this person, but I'm gone all the time. And it's different if you go home all the time. That relationship is different when you're spending all your time together. That's how our relationship is with God. A relationship with Jesus is that we, we make a commitment to him, and then we live with him. He's with us in our heart all of the time. So the Lord wants us to know him personally. Uh, we're to allow Jesus Christ to be the vine of our lives, and we are the branches. We read that in John. I am the vine, you are the branch. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Think about that for just a moment. The vine has to be attached to the branch of a grapevine. So you have a large grapevine coming up, and then there's a branch that goes off of it. And what happens if you cut it off? What happens if you separate it? If you separate it, that, that branch dies, right? It's not going to bear fruit if it's not connected to the vine. We all understand that. It would be separated and there would be death. It's, there's not going to be any fruit. So if there's no fruit in somebody's life, if there's no fruit in your life, you might want to examine your connection with the branch. Look at how close you are to the Lord. 
Because your life should be bearing fruit. It should be fruitful. You can look at your own life and you can say, am I fruitful or not? And you can look in the scripture and you can see what are, what are those evidences of fruit? What's the fruit? A lot of times we, we want to look at other people. We want to say, well, I can be a fruit inspector. I can look at this person and see how good of a Christian they are. That's true. You can, and that's actually a biblical response. But first look at yourself. Look at yourself first and see how connected you are. Do you see fruit in your life? If not, what do we have to do to get that connection back? Christ asks that we not only receive him, but that we walk with him, be rooted and built up. That's from Colossians, Colossians 2. Our relationship with God is one of great intimacy and dependency. We're asked to no longer live for ourselves, but live with him. We are to be in Christ and he is to be in us. So just as we read, without him we can do nothing, but through him we can do anything he calls us to do. Sometimes God puts something in our pathway, in our life, and we, we feel like, wow, I, that's just too much. I can't do that. I'm too old to do that. I'm too young to do that. Uh, I don't have enough experience to do that. But the Bible says we can do anything he calls us to do through him. So we know that love is at the center of that relationship. It's because of his love for us that Jesus rose and died, or died and rose from the dead. He, he was and he is love personified, and nothing in all creation can separate us from that love. We read about that in Romans, Romans 8. And John, 1 John 4, 8 says, where Christ is, his love is his very character. So Jesus said that it's by this love that his authentic disciples are recognized by his love. So love is a fruit, right? Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Do you have love one for another? Do you care for each other? That would be a fruit. If, you, um, are, if your response is that um, I'm a Christian, but man, I really hate Christians because they're so hypocritical. That's true sometimes. They are hypocritical. Or you say, you say well, I, I'm a Christian, but man, God's people really drive me nuts. I can't stand to be around them. That's an absence of love. Because with love, we can overlook those things, right? With love, we look at each other and we say, well, you know, this guy's, this guy's falling really short of what the goal is. This guy is... Uh, this guy's a, a nice guy, but man, he's not a really great Christian. But love overlooks that, doesn't it? So if we don't have that love for one another, we need to examine ourselves. You know, that love can be expressed in word, um, in talk. It can be expressed in action. So love is not an option for Christians. Love is at the center. Love is at the very center of our lifestyle. And then there are other qualities of the fruits of the Spirit. They're at the center of a Christian's life, lifestyle. They include joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians has a list, a list of fruit of the Spirit. We can examine ourselves 
We can look at those things and say, do we show, do we have evidence of that in our life? You know, life doesn't live it out. They say it. It's just nothing but words. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it out, isn't it? If you're living it out, you really don't have to say it because it's obvious. It's obvious that someone is living from a point of love. Uh, The book of James is all about how to live an authentic Christian life. James understands us how to live that out. Um, James moves us from the place of merely possessing intellectual belief. You know, intellectual, intellectualism is where you learn about... There are people who learn about the Bible, but they're not Christians. They learn about it from a historical perspective. So there's a difference between intellectual knowledge and, uh, and wisdom in living it out. Too often the church just tells people that we should live for God and we need to do what's right, and they never tell us how to do that. So James moves beyond that. James moves beyond moralizing to teach us how to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord of our life. He teaches us a practical, workable thing, Um, He has kind of a show-and-tell style that makes it easy to understand. So James is concerned with this matter of faith. For him, faith is not just something to be, be believed. Faith is something that we do. It's practical. It's lived out. So James, chapter 1, verse 1, James, a bondservant of Christ, of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Lord, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this encouragement, the encouragement that we read about in James. Lord, we pray that you would plant it in our hearts, and we pray that, uh, that we could live out what it is to be a true Christian. So, you know, when James starts this chapter, he identifies himself as a servant. James was the brother of Jesus. He could have said in that first verse, he could have said, James, brother of Jesus, a bondservant, but he doesn't. Why doesn't he? Well, it could be a source of pride. What do you think? If you're the brother of Jesus, wouldn't it be, you know, uh, James, brother of Jesus, you know, could be a little puffed up, right? That's not how James approaches it. James doesn't even mention it. I kind of think if I were writing it, I probably would say, you know, Scott, brother of Jesus, (laughs) you know. No, he doesn't do that. He just, James, a servant, identifies himself as a servant. Isn't that great? He He was a leader of the church, but he identifies himself as the servant of God, the servant of Jesus Christ. Um. This identification that he makes here is not just a style. It's not just a writing style for him. He was writing with a Christian perspective of being a servant leader. He is a leader, but he sees himself as being a servant leader, a servant first. James understands who he is. James understands who the people of God are within the Christian family. His style is one of love and humility um, other, other leaders in the church use similar greetings in their, in their writings, like Paul 
Paul in Philippians 1 and Peter 2 and, uh, and so forth. And so James understands that his highest calling is that of a servant. A servant is a high calling in God's family. It's, it's upside down from what the world is. It's upside down because in the world, if you are a servant, you're at the bottom, right? You're, you're at the bottom. You know, we have kind of a, in, in, in life, we have kind of a pecking order uh, of, of how things operate. Um, if someone is the, if someone is the, is the leader, if someone is the boss, they're at the top, right? We understand that. And the guy who takes out the garbage is at the bottom. We get that. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Not so in the family of God. Not so in the church. The servant is the highest calling. The servant is at the top. So it should be flipped upside down, right? The person who is is running things, they should be at the bottom. Actually, they should be. They should see themselves as a servant. They should see themselves as serving all of those people who are doing the work. They should say, I am here to help you. I am here to serve you. Correct? It is. It is correct. And we need to be really careful about how we look at ourselves in this life because the Bible says that those who are first will be last. And those who are last will be first. What do we want when we leave this world? Do we want to be first? Or do we want to be last? I would a whole lot rather be last right now and be first then, right? Absolutely, it is right. So James understands that the highest calling is not that he's the brother of Jesus, but it's that he's a servant. Peter presents that same viewpoint when he addresses his fellow elders concerning the Christian style of leadership. In 1 Peter 5, he's talking about the teaching of Jesus regarding that matter of servant leadership that we read about in Matthew 20. So Jesus taught that the leaders in his kingdom don't lord over. They don't dominate the servants. They don't lord over them. Instead, the one who is the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who is the servant of all. Matthew twenty twenty six. That's the understanding and that's the conviction that James had. His only goal was to serve. James is writing to a church that has been scattered across the countryside. Um, they were Christians who were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire as a result of severe persecution. And in verse 2, he writes, My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, I hate trials. I know probably a lot of you thoroughly enjoy them. But I don't. I hate them. They're bad. When, when the pressure's on, when I'm going through something really tough, I don't like that. I wish I was more like you, you know, you enjoy that, but I really don't. James is writing to people here who are really well acquainted with pain 
and the challenge of trials. Most of those Christians faced severe trials. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. They lost everything. They had to run for their lives to strange places, and they didn't take very much with them. They probably took what they could carry. These Christians were not just inconvenienced. You know, it's an inconvenience if you lose your job and you have to move to some other place. That's an inconvenience. These Christians were persecuted. These Christians took what they could carry and they ran for it. They ran for their lives. They were fighting for survival. They were separated from family members. They were separated from friends. So they not only had to relocate geographically, but they also had to relocate spiritually. They left everyone behind. They were members of a new family, the body of Christ. And in that world, they they were aliens, they were foreigners, they were strangers, but they had become fellow citizens with saints and with members of the household of God. And that's what connected them. Jesus teaches us three practical ideas of how to profit from trials. We all go through trials. Jesus himself said that in this life you will have trouble. And we do, don't we? We have, it's one thing after another, isn't it? Jesus said, James said here, he said, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. I've read that verse many times, and you know what I want to do? I want to just skip on past it, because I don't want to deal with the trials. I don't want to consider it pure joy. Pure joy when you're facing a trial? Come on. Really? That's what it says. Consider it joy. We don't welcome trials. We don't want them. But James says to not only face trials, but to face them with joy. He says, he says, face them with pure joy. Can you believe it? In that Greek text, the word translated as pure is the word that is the primary word meaning all or every or whole or thoroughly. So, you could say, Face it with thorough joy. Face it with pure joy. James is telling us not to fake it. You don't, you don't tell your Christian friends, well, I'm facing this trial here. I have cancer or whatever it is. But, but I have pure joy with it. You know? No, you don't. That's fake, Right? If you have to tell somebody you're facing it with joy, that's fake. No, you live it. You live it. Don't fake it. Have pure joy. Sometimes we want to say, well, I don't have joy with this. So I'm going to pretend like I have joy. You know, your heart's breaking on the inside because you're facing all of this. You know, you're facing chemo. You're facing radiation, you're facing all of this stuff, and nobody wants to do that, right? And so, you know, it's kind of like the smile through the tears sort of a thing. James says, have joy. Don't be contrived. Don't fake it. 
have pure, unadulterated, all-encompassing joy, the real thing. We're going to talk about how to do that. The second word that we need to explore is that word trial. The root of that word means to assay, as in gold, you know, assay gold, or to examine or to put to the proof. A good definition uh, uh, might be an external adversary that provides a testing towards an end. So an external adversary that provides a testing. The word is used to describe a young bird that tests its wings. It's a word that's often translated as temptation, as in prayer. Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6, Uh, And the writer of Hebrews uses that word to describe trials or temptations that's faced by the children of Israel. So he uses that same word, that word that's used to describe a young bird that's testing its wings. One of the greatest promises regarding trials and temptations is found in 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes, No temptation has overcome you except as common as is common to man. No temptation has overcome you except it's what's common. God is faithful. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to. And God will always enable a way of, mis- of, of escape that you may bear it. From 1 Corinthians 10. This is the kind of hope, this is the kind of joy This is the kind of optimism that we need to live with. We know that things are coming at us, but we know that God's there. We know he will provide a way out. We know that he will provide a way to have that kind of joy. The third word in verse 2 that I want to look at is that word that's translated as various. That word means many or several kinds of trials. Many trials, several types of trials, various trials. There are three varieties of trials or temptations that I could think of that are faced by sincere Christians. The first one is a cause and effect trial. So that's the, that's the type of trial that, that adheres to the principles of Scripture that teach us that we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. Uh, cause and effect trials. Many of the trials and temptations that come into our lives come through our own disobedience, don't they? We, we disobey even though we know that, um, that there are possible consequences of something, and, uh, and we do it anyway, and we reap what we sow. James teaches us about that Later on in the first chapter in verses 13 through 16, um, he says that lust draws us away. So we play with fire to see how close we can get without getting burnt. We play with fire. We know that fire burns, right? Don't we? I remember my kids when they were little and they liked to play in a candle. They knew that there was a little bit of fire right there. But It seemed pretty small, and it seemed pretty manageable, and so they would want to play with that. They would want to play with the wax, you know, and the candle that's melting. I remember doing that when I was a kid. And if you get too close to it, you get burnt. But they wanted to play with it. There's something fascinating about the fire. 
There's something fascinating about sin when we as Christians are playing with sin. We want to see, can we, can we play with it a little bit without getting burnt? Sometimes we can. And I think that's where the fascination is, is that we know that we can play a little bit with it. But then eventually we get burnt, don't we? We sow what we reap. We reap what we sow. The second variety of trials that we can face as Christians is the spiritual trial. Peter tells us to not be surprised or don't think it strange concerning the fiery trials which try you in 1 Peter 4. He says in 1 Peter 4, 16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. That basically affirms Jesus' teaching when he said, In this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have, not might have trouble, some of you are going to have trouble. Some of you who are not as good a Christian as others might have some trouble. No, he said, you will have trouble. Honestly, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian and you're living out Christ, you're guaranteed to have trouble. It's a guarantee. You will. You will have more trouble than if you were not a Christian. I guarantee it. I'm going to talk about a little bit about why that is in a few minutes. Don't think it's strange when you face fiery trials. Jesus said, but in me you will have peace. You'll have trouble, but you'll have peace. How does that work out? I have trouble in my life, but I still have peace. Jesus told his disciples, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Basically what he's saying there is that, that I'm the master, I'm the leader, and I got persecuted, and you are a servant of mine, and you definitely will be persecuted. You absolutely will be persecuted. That's the kind of trial that comes from living a godly life. There are trials that come because you are living a godly life. The one who follows Jesus as Lord and as citizen of his kingdom is out of step with society. We can say that today, can't we? It is so politically incorrect to say that we take a stand against abortion. Try posting that on Facebook and see what you're going to get. You're probably going to get flamed. Try posting on Facebook that Jesus is the only way and look at the response that you get. Try posting on Facebook and say that if you're not a Christian, you're not going to be saved Try posting it and see what happens. Try posting on Facebook that if you're homosexual, you're not going to be saved. And see what kind of a response. You'll get flamed. 
because we're out of step with society, aren't we? We're more out of step today than we were six months ago. I'm sorry to say, but our society has moved that far in six months. We're out of step with society, and we're going to pay a price for it. We just will. We'll lose friends. We will probably lose business partners. Uh, Our neighbors will be rude to us. There's all kinds of things that are going to happen. Then there's a kind of a trial that I would call a, a spiritually mysterious trial. And no doubt this is the most difficult type of a trial for us to, to deal with and to be joyful through. Spiritually mysterious trial. The problem with this kind of a trial is that there's no rationale. There's no logical reason for the trial. At least we can't see it. We can't see it. We can't understand it. This is a kind of trial that was faced by Job. Remember Job? Job faced all kinds of things. He faced, he faced illness. He faced... Um, he, he lost his family. He lost his, his, um, he lost his herds. He lost everything that he had. He lost everything. And his friends were convinced that Job was having these trials because he had sin in his life. They were saying, well, Job, if you just lived right, you wouldn't be going through all of this. Job, if you just if you cleaned up your life, quit hiding the sin, Job. Job, it's it's probably something you're looking at on the internet. Clean it up, Job, and you'll be fine. Job asked a lot of the right questions, but he still didn't understand why. He didn't get why. Why am I going through these trials? Job's wife was certain that it was God's fault. Curse God and die, remember? Just get it over with. It's God's fault. God's doing this to you. The conclusion of, at the conclusion of the book of Job, he never does understand why he was going through those trials. It's a spiritually mysterious trial. We're living fine. We're not, you know, we're not... Um, living out some horrible sin that's hidden. We're living, we're living okay. I mean, we're not perfect. We get that. I'm not saying that. But you're making an effort to, to live for God. You don't have any huge sins in your life. You come to church at least every other week. You know, you're doing pretty well. But there's still all these trials. We don't know why we're going through those trials. God gives Job the solution. It's the proper form for every trial. That solution is to commit his trust and utter faith to God. That's the solution. That's what God is looking for. Job acknowledged the mystery of God's ways not being our ways. He committed himself to his faithful God who could always be trusted. Just like Job, sometimes we go through an illness And it's not because of sin. Maybe there's a death in our family. It's not because of sin. Maybe we're going through an extreme financial problem. And it's not because of sin. There's not that problem in our life. 
The logical question that we could ask, and it's perfectly reasonable, is why do we have to suffer so badly? It's not a matter of cause and effect or a spiritual trial. That's true of many of the trials that we face in our life. It's not a cause and effect thing. It's just a spiritually mysterious trial. And the solution is the same solution that Job had. We trust ourselves to the Lord with all of our heart. So what blessing then resulted from that trust and commitment? Um, Our pure joy in a trial is unmistakable. Where do, we, where, do we, where do we, how can you come up with joy in a trial? It's because you know God's working in your life. God's allowing things that is refining you. God is allowing things that's working things into your life that you couldn't get any other way. We want to be one of those who considers it pure joy when we face trials. Whether or not the trials make sense. They don't make sense. The solution is always the same. We turn to Jesus. We trust in him for strength. We trust in him for wisdom. And we can have joy. We can have joy through that trial. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. God is not the author of evil. He's not the author of suffering. He's not the author of trials. But God has a wonderful capacity for working them for good in our life. God can take any trial that we're going through, whatever it is, and work it for good. Please understand that. God God is not doing this to you. God is not doing anything to you. But God allows it because it works something into our life that we couldn't get any other way. And God can take what someone meant for evil and make it for good. He can work it for good. Look at the rest of that verse. This is from Romans eight twenty eight. We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's really critical to look at the remainder of that verse. All things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You need to be serving God for that to be in effect. You need to be committed to God for that to be in effect. In that context, James argues that there's a very good practical reason of facing trials with pure joy and a deep faith in Jesus Christ. And the result of trials is the development of patience and perseverance. Take a look at that word testing. That word testing literally means proving or trying. It's the word used by Peter when he writes about the genuineness of your faith. being more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, and it may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of testing that comes out of, that is compared to the refiner's fire. When it, when, in reference to the refiner's fire, that's the fire that, that um, cooks gold so that the impurities are separated out. It heats up extremely hot, and pretty soon the impurities are, are separated from the gold. 
That's the refiner's fire. That's what we go through as Christians. Why do we want to do that? Why do we want to go through refiner's fire? It's because when we face God, we don't want to be full of impurities. When it comes our time to die, to leave this world, we want to be pure. We want to be as pure as gold. Because nothing will be allowed in heaven that is not pure. So we want to be separated. We want to be completely separated out. So this word used by Peter when he writes about the genuineness of your faith, it's much more precious than gold that perishes. Get that. I just talked about gold. And Peter here says that, that uh, the genuineness of our faith, our faith is worth more than gold. Our faith is worth more than gold. And how do you get faith? You only get faith by going through trials, don't we? That's the kind of testing that's compared to the refiner's fire. God allows this kind of testing in our lives for our good. He allows it for our good. When we commit ourselves to him, the impurities of that wrong motives, they're removed from our lives. The wrong conduct, it's removed from our lives. It's through trials. It's through going through these experiences. Our motives get get, uh, straightened out. Our conduct gets straightened out. And then he leaves us, he leaves us with patience and perseverance. Next, notice where this testing takes place. He refers to it, James refers to it as the testing of our faith. The source of our faith is God. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word of God. And uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible. We need to have that faith. We've got to have that faith. So the testing that God allows to take place in our lives is at the place of the greatest spiritual significance, which is our faith. It comes at us at our faith. It's by faith that we come to God. It's by faith that we follow Him. And it's by faith that we receive His promises, including eternal life. As we're tried, our faith grows. We trust God more fully because He gets us through it, right? He gets us through it, and we're better when we get through it than we were before we started it, right? It's, our faith is developed by going through things and realizing God is there. God is with us. God is going to make a way where there's no way. God is going to preserve us. Everything is going to be fine because God is with us. Understand that um, the testing of our faith uh, results in perseverance, results in patience. Understand that it's not a passive patience. It's not a patience that could be construed to be like laziness. It's not a type of patience that, um, that sits back and watches things happen. It's an active patience. So it's a patience that has an element of steadfastness or staying power. It's an active patience. 
That's the attribute that's referred to by Paul when he writes that tribulation produces perseverance. And the writer of Hebrews tells us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. That's what he says in Hebrews 12. Let us run with perseverance. You know what perseverance is? Is when we, we can keep going. We can keep on. We can keep pushing forward. We don't just say, oh, I can't do it. It's too much. I'm just going to sit down on the side of the track here and, and, and I'm going to rest. I'm done. I can't take I can't take the trials anymore. No, God gives us the ability to persevere. He gives us the ability to keep on. He gives us the ability to not give up. God invites us to trust him with all that we have and to realize that even the testing of our faith is for our good because it develops perseverance. Later in that letter, James gives some additional insights and he gives some counsel on how to respond to suffering and trials in James 5. Within that context, he refers to the examples of Job and the prophets and he points to Christ as the one full of compassion and mercy who finally brings the solution to our needs. The suffering and trials of life are always profitable when we direct ourselves to God. That is, that is so elemental in understanding trials. The suffering and trials are always profitable when we direct ourselves to God. The result of those trials are some benefits that are so important to us to recognize. James identifies three, three specific benefits that come to us as a result of the trials. One is perseverance and patience. He helps us become mature and complete and not lacking anything. James tells us that the testing of our faith produces patience. And he argues there in um, verse 4, Patience must finish its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Look at that verse if you can. It's a perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We know that when it says perfect, it doesn't mean like perfect. Understand that? It's not, we're not perfect. We're not perfect Christians. But in God's eyes, we are complete, lacking nothing. That's an amazing observation. The facing of trials, the testing of our faith can be profitable to us if we entrust ourselves to the Lord. We need to understand that God will use negative experiences for very positive results. And he will develop personal character through perseverance. Developing perseverance is not an end in itself. We're not developing perseverance to just have perseverance. That's not the point. Perseverance is a great Christian virtue, but as we continue to trust ourselves with the Lord, the quality of perseverance will continue to work. It will continue to enable us to an ultimate completion so that we become mature, complete Christians 
who lack nothing. That's the goal of the perseverance. It's sort of like exercising. Exercise is not a means to an end. I mean, exercise is not the end. Exercise is a means to an end. Exercise is a means towards improving our health. But just exercise in itself is not the goal. The goal is what the exercise will produce. That's that's the word that Jesus used in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, Therefore, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Our human response to that is that it's impossible to be perfect. No one can be perfect but God. And that's absolutely right. And interestingly, that word is only found in one other place in the New Testament. It's in the closing blessing of his first letter to the Thessalonians, where Paul states, May you be whole. May you be whole um, in spirit, soul, and body, and be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what James is saying right there. As we allow patience to have its perfect work, we become increasingly complete, increasingly whole, entire, perfect in every part. And just in case the first two statements aren't clear enough, he continues on with a third in verse 4, where he promises that we will lack nothing. The word for lacking there is the same word that James uses in the next verse when he says, if any of you lack wisdom. It cannot be translated any more graphically than to want nothing, to be complete, to be whole. That's it. When we allow patience to have its perfect work, we become, we're growing, we become more and more like Jesus, we become perfect, perfectly mature, perfectly grown, complete, perfect in every part, lacking nothing. And in addition to those three results that James shares in verse 4, there's a fourth one. There's the benefit of perseverance in the face of trials that he uh, talks about in verse 12. And in that context, he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has proved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Wow. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life. Wow. Will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There are those immediate benefits from perseverance. There's always the ultimate benefit that supersedes everything, and that is life eternal. Life eternal. No one can take that from us. Life is not always fair. The victories of God are not always immediately obvious, but there's one thing for sure, and that is that ultimate victory is ours in Jesus Christ. As we're faithful and as we persevere, the crown of life awaits us in a victory circle. In a few minutes, we're going to pray. And if you've been thinking about giving your life, if you've been thinking about giving your life to the Lord, the time for thinking is done. Don't put it off any longer. You've nothing to lose. 
You have nothing to lose, but you have everything to gain. You might be thinking that your life is too much of a mess, and you need to get it straightened out before you come to the Lord. But I want to tell you that God straightens your life out. You can't do it on your own. It's not about you being good enough. It's about you being willing enough to give up yourself. If you enter into the Christian family, it's not based on your goodness. It's based on His grace. You're probably limited in that goodness area. But God is not limited in the grace area. A life of faith is possible for all of God's people. God often allows issues and problems into your life to work in a Christian character, but that doesn't mean that God hates you. It means that he loves you. He loves you enough to work into your life um, Christian characteristics. If you've been thinking about making Jesus your Lord and Savior, I want you to stop thinking about it. I want you to um, pray with me. I'm going to pray right now. And uh, I'd like you to just follow along and pray, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, Lord, in need of a Savior. And I submit my life to you. I submit my heart to you right now. Lord, forgive me for things that I've done that aren't pleasing to you. Lord, lead me forward in living a life that is pleasing to you. Lord, take control of my life and bless me indeed. Lord God, thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives right now. We invite you to continue that work, Lord. We pray that as we go through trials that we would keep our heart and our eyes on you and that you would use us in your work in this earth. Lord God, we submit to you. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, God bless you. Welcome to God's family. I'd like you to stand right now while we sing our last song. And if you need prayer, I would be more than pleased to pray with you. If you just come down here, I would like to pray with you.